Welcome to Off the Books, a show about books and the people that love them. Some episodes are with a regular book club and some are with writers talking about the books that have shaped their thoughts and lives. I'm Madeline and today I'm joined by author Elaine Castillo, who will be discussing the works that have influenced her writing. In particular, her debut novel, America is Not the Heart, which is published on the 3rd of May in the UK by Atlantic Books, which is actually today the time of recording. So congratulations, Elaine. Um, Elaine did an MA in creative writing at Goldsmiths and after completing her novel moved back to the Bay Area which is where the book is set America in part it tells the story of Hero a recent Filipino immigrant in the United States and her attempt to build a new life there Hero is and has been many things before coming to the States she was born to upper class parents in the Philippines She dropped out of medical school to join communist rebels in the New People's Army. After 10 years there, she's captured, but released once her captors discover her parents' link to the current regime. Not before they have broken her thumbs, however, rendering her unable to practice medicine. She's in fact rejected by the same parents that in some way saved her, and the only person who will take her in is her uncle Paul in America. She arrives traumatised in body and spirit, but finds a kindred spirit in the fierce and stubborn Roni, her seven-year-old cousin with whom she shares her name, Geronima. She becomes Roni's childminder, and it's through this, through ferrying Roni to and from school, through taking her to the faith healers for the eczema that ravages her skin, that Hero meets Rosalind. And with Rosalind, she embarks on what is probably my favourite love affair that I've ever read in literature. It is seriously sexy, um, beautiful, heartbreaking, fun, honest. Um, and it's what helps Hero, I guess, find life again. We're going to talk a little bit about the books that have led up to this novel. Um, and Elaine's picked them. They are Lucy by Jamaica Kincaid, Kitchen by Banana Yoshimoto, and America is in the Heart by Carlos Bulasan. So welcome, Elaine. Thank, Thank you for joining you. us. Thank you for having me. Thank you for saying those brain-meltingly kind words, which I will now have to wipe from my memory. <laughs> well, you, got, you guys are going to get a taste of it later on, so you'll see what I mean when oh, I say God. how sexy it is. Oh, gosh. Um, should we begin with Lucy? Yes, please. My favourite book of all time, yes. Um, can you tell us a little bit about it and um, why you p- picked it? So I... I first came to Lucy, I think it was in college, I think it was assigned to me, I think I was about 18 or 19, and it blew my mind. I think it, was, it came at that kind of formative time where you've read a bunch of formative literature in the kind of, your kind of like teens and sort of early teens, but you're at the sort of beginning of maybe your formative young adult, sort of adult mm-hmm. literature, and I think this is when Lucy came, also when you're kind of forming your politics. So Jamaican Kate, Kate is an Antigua writer, and Lucy is essentially follows a young West Indian woman who comes to the States to work as a au pair in the, or, or a nanny for a white family. And it's sort of, it's, it's a really spare novel that kind of follows her relationship with the family, but also her sort of romantic and sexual sort of explorations in the States, and all, but also her kind of, in a sense, her, their formation of selfhood in, in, in a way that for me has always been, I think, uh, one of the most searing and really singular portraits of 
I think, female freedom in literature. So mm. for me, it, it's always just been a, a kind of lighthouse in terms of whenever I sort of feel lost, I just basically go back and read Lucy and then kind of feel anchored in the world. Yeah, you definitely go on a journey yeah, with yeah, her. Yeah, yeah. incredibly powerful. Do you want to read the yes. passage? Okay, I'm going to read a passage <coughs> that's um, in which Lucy, the main character, Lucy, is um, talking to her, essentially her employer, Mariah, um, and I think that's probably all you need to know. Yes. I was sitting on the veranda one day with these thoughts when I saw Mariah come up the path holding in her hand six grayish blackish fish. She said, ta-da, trout, and made a big sweep with her hands holding the fish up in the light so that rainbow-like colors shone on their scales. She sang out, I will make you fishers of men and danced around me. After she stopped, she said, aren't they beautiful? Gus and I went out in my old boat, my very, very old boat, and we caught them, my fish. This is supper. Let's go feed the minions. It's possible that what she really said was millions, not minions. Certainly, she said it in jest. But as we were cooking the fish, I was thinking about it. Minions. A word like that would haunt someone like me. The place where I came from was a dominion of someplace else. I became so taken with the word dominion that I told Mariah this story. When I was about five years old or so, I had read to me the first time the story of Jesus Christ feeding the multitudes with seven loaves and a few fishes. After my mother had finished reading this to me, I said to her, but how did Jesus serve the fish, boiled or fried? This made my mother look at me in amazement and shake her head. She then told everybody she met what I had said, and they would shake their heads and say, what a child. It wasn't really such an unusual question. In the place where I grew up, many people earned their living by being fishermen. Often after a fisherman came in from sea and had distributed most of his fish to the people with whom he had such an arrangement, he might save some of them, clean and season them, and build a fire, and he and his wife would fry them at the seashore and put them up for sale. It was quite a nice thing to sit on the sand under a tree, seeking refuge from the hot sun, and eat a perfectly fried fish as you took in the view of the beautiful blue sea, former home of the thing you were eating. When I had inquired about the way the fish were served with the loaves, to myself I had thought, not only would the multitudes be pleased to have something to eat, not only would they marvel at the miracle of turning so little into so much, but they might go on to pass a judgment on the way the food tasted. I know it would have mattered to me. In our house, we all preferred boiled fish. It was a pity that the people who recorded their life with Christ never mentioned this small detail, a detail that would have meant a lot to me. Mariah and I were saying goodnight to each other the way we always did, with a hug and a kiss, but this time we did it as if we both wished we hadn't gotten such a custom started. She was almost out of the room when she turned and said, I was looking forward to telling you that I have Indian blood, that the reason I'm so good at catching fish and hunting birds and roasting corn and doing all sorts of things is that I have Indian blood. But now, I don't know why, I feel I shouldn't tell you that. I feel you will take it the wrong way. This really surprised me. What way should I take this? Wrong way? right way? What could she mean? To look at her, there was nothing remotely like an Indian about her. Why claim a thing like that? I myself had Indian blood in me. My grandmother is a Carib Indian. That makes me one quarter Carib Indian. But I don't go around saying that I have some Indian blood in me. The Carib Indians were good sailors, but I don't like to be on the sea. I only like to look at it. To me, my grandmother is my grandmother, not an Indian. My grandmother is alive. The Indians she came from are all dead. If someone could get away with it, I am sure they would put my grandmother in a museum as an example of something now ex extinct in nature, one of a handful still alive. In fact, one of the museums to which Mariah had taken me devoted a whole section to people, all dead, who are more or less related to my grandmother. Mariah says, I have Indian blood in me. 
and underneath everything I could swear she says it as if she were announcing her possession of a trophy. How do you get to be the sort of victor who can claim to be the vanquished also? I now heard Mariah say, Well, and she let out a long breath full of sadness, resignation, even dread. I looked at her. Her face was miserable, tormented, ill-looking. She looked at me in a pleading way as if asking for relief, and I looked back, my face and my eyes hard, no matter what I would not give it. I said, All along I have been wondering how you got to be the way you are, just how it was that you got to be the way you are. Even now she couldn't let go, and she reached out, her arms open wide, to give me one of her great hugs, but I stepped out of its path quickly, and she was left holding nothing. I said it again. I said, how do you get to be that way? The anguish on her face almost broke my heart, but I would not bend. It was hollow, my triumph. I could feel that, but I held on to it just the same. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you, that was beautiful. Yay. I um, skipped a little bit. <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh... Maybe it is quite a long word. <laughs> um, I love, I found that moment in the book, I love the, that question, how do you mm. get to be the way you are, the kind of double meaning of it, both like how did you manage to be like this, but also mm. how comes you get to yeah, be like yeah, this. Yeah. Um, can you tell me a bit about what you love about this passage? Well, I mean, I guess, I guess the passage is in a way sort of split up into two. So I think that the, the first bit of the passage where she's talking about the sort of, you know, this very well-known myth of Jesus f- feeding the multitudes with fish and loaves and how she asks, well, how, did, how, how was the fish made? Mm. And that kind of, you know, it, it's that kind of really textual sort of granular question that maybe a child asks, but that really in a way... I think is, is, a, is a kind of signaling to Jamaica Kincaid's how, where she places her emphasis in her fiction. Mm-hmm. So it's not just these kind of like huge sort of empty epic narratives where, you know, people in their actual material lives are never sort of depicted. But she's interested, well, tell me how people like the food. Tell me, do you like boiled or fried? Tell me, because this is how, these are how people who I know like pe- fish that are boiled or fried. And she sort of brings it back into kind of her own context, but also it just makes it really kind of sort of viscerally alive in a way that I, I, you know, I never thought of the kind of these sorts of biblical myths like that, like there might actually be people in them who, you know, have food preferences. So for me, it's it, it, it's just indicative of the way she thinks about how to write characters and also in a way how to contrast against kind of these kind of abstract myths. And, and in doing that, in placing emphasis on the details and in the everyday, you reach something more profound that lies yeah. underneath because exactly. our daily lives are just made up of a series of mundane uh, tasks, experiences, Absolutely. tiny life choices. Am I going to have butter today or not? Oh, I can't have yeah, butter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, this is, um, this is the, I'm always saying that this is my life and writing motto, just make it more banal. Banality more. Banality now. Yeah, <laughs> banality now, yes, please. Um, and I think that this also relates in some ways to something we were talking about earlier mm. and you mentioned when we were prepping for the show. Um, Lucy, the protagonist sort of assumed identity so mm. not um apologizing and yeah. not explaining yeah. her perspective and her very acute sense of whiteness can you talk a bit about that yeah i think uh, jamaica kincaid is often kind of described as an angry writer in a way that's often 
pejorative. I mean, I think there is a righteous anger in her. I mean, that that description is usually pretty racialized, and it's it's it's, it's a description that's often ascribed particularly to women of color and particularly black women. So I, I always think, you know, that's a dog whistle word mm. when when she's described as angry. And there is, I think, righteous anger in her book. And why wouldn't there be? I mean, she writes about British colonization in a way that's absolutely sort of devastating and searing, and also completely, in a way, clear-eyed. In a way that 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 I, I found really, I think, captivating when I was when I was in college. I think uh, for me, I, I always think of this book as one of the really great masterpieces on, and essentially on white feminism, because the main one of the main sort of foil essentially to Lucy mm-hmm. is her employer Mariah, who is this real kind of like you know sort of like sort of self-described sort of white liberal who thinks that she's really progressive and this kind of thing like we've all heard this sort of white woman come up to us and be like I've got like Indian blood in me and you're like please actually chill (laughs) please stop and so it was the first time in literature that I saw someone actually sort of depict exactly that moment where you had to sort of be like well that line like how do you get to be the kind of victor who also can also claim to be the vanquished I think that sort of just complete indictment of that type of sort of fake progressive white feminism, mm. I think, f- for me, I think Lucy should be read, especially, you know, now, I- I say through that, that lens. As in, it's, it feels so relevant oh, now yeah. into, like, conversations around intersexual feminism yeah, and yeah, yeah. when to speak and when not to yeah, speak. Yeah. <laughs> um, and how, how did, so, you know, taking these attention to detail, this ac- acute sense of whiteness and um, how do you... Did the, did these attitudes play out in your own work in your own writing? I mean, I think I I I think in 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 the kinds of ways that you when you read books that are formative for you in a way like up until that point I I mean I had sort of I I was a huge huge reader really from a young kid and read a lot of writers in translation and read a lot of Filipino writers and you know I I read I think subconsciously in a kind of proto political way I read mainly writers of color um, but I think still to some extent I'd always, in a sense, had the sense that kind of literature was this great sort of park, which is to say, you go there, um, but you have to go home. <laughs> which is to say, you know, it's, it's this great park, you know, it's, it's, it's the most beautiful place in the world, that's awesome, but you've got to go home. Whereas when I, read some, when I read something like Lucy, the kinds of characters, the way she describes, you know, the, the, the way she describes, you know, black womanhood and womanhood of color, I think for me it was like someone giving me a deed. It was like someone saying, no, 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 no the kinds of things that you experience, the kinds of lives that you recognize around you, that is also, that also belongs in literature. That is, that this, this space is also yours. So I think it was that. I think it was the, the way her characters kind of unapologi- unapologetically take up space, the kind of absolute sort of clarity and, in a way, I think unsentimental is the word, I, I think, and I use that complimentary because I, I, I would say I'm also unsentimental in that way, I think really, in a sense, gave me permission in the way that that your formative books really do um i i felt there was quite a lot of lucy in some ways in hero oh i'm sure in that kind of badass straight face no i'm not gonna crack a smile no even (sighs) though you're like saying to me please (laughs) that's the best Um, compliment i've ever heard (laughs) and this idea that they're constantly like upsetting or surprising friends and family by a lack of sentimentality or feeling in quotation marks um and that kind of frankness exposes the superficiality around her and i wonder do you mind there's this great bit from your book you don't have it on your sheet i have it on my sheet (laughs) 
I'm sorry. This is a little powerful. Um, Out of nowhere. I I wondered if you would if you would. Oh that. yes, of course. I think yes. that this and it, and Lucy and Hero as well kind of sexually have very similar. Very attitudes, similar. I think. Almost yeah. clinical. Yeah. Very clinical. Very free. Uh, yeah. They exactly. Just, they just want it. They just want it. And <laughs> they know what they want. Okay. Hero had never been a romantic. She'd never been someone who fantasized about dream lovers, marriage, dramatic heartbreak. Often people, mostly men, interpreted her diffidence for coquetry, told themselves there was a smoldering sexuality beneath all that silence. They were mistaken. She neither smoldered nor was coy. She wanted to fuck and be fucked. That was it. I love that bit so much. Um, and while we're, so while we're talking about uh, this lack of sentimentality and... These, these different themes that run through. I also wanted to bring in Kitchen here because I think in a different way but similar, the protagonist of that book, um, Mikage? Mikage? Yeah, Mikage, yeah. Mikage um, has, a, has a similar strand where, you know, where she upsets her mm. friend's girlfriend mm-hmm, because, mm-hmm. and the, the woman screams at her, you're so cold, how can you yeah. be so cold? And this kind of refusal to bend to conventional rituals and customs mm. or social conventions. Um, so, yeah, could you tell us a little bit about Banana and why you chose that? Sure. Um, kitchen and why you chose that? I, I came to Kitchen much younger than Lucy. I think I might have been 13 or 14. And this is the period in my life where I, you know, I, I was really just going to the library and getting books, any book that didn't sound like it was quote-unquote mainstream American literature, which is to say that didn't sound like it was written by white people, I was getting those books. Anything that was writing in translation. I don't think I realized that this was a kind of political choice at the time. I think I was just looking for essentially, I think, trans writer, writing by writers of color. And, and this was one of the books that I found kind of randomly on a library shelf. And I think I must have been something like 13 or 14 possibly even younger when I read it and I think like Lucy it was it also was just hugely formative um it's about essentially a young woman whose grandmother dies it's a very short book like Lucy it's a very short book um a woman whose grandmother dies and she kind of gets taken in by this young man and his mother who's a trans woman um in and essentially what what happens which I mean we, we can discuss the kind of ultimately bummer problematicness of that is that his his mother is killed in a transphobic act of violence and it's really about sort of Mikage sort of working through that grief but about also just about sort of the kind of tiny ways that people make a life in, a, in, in in within the landscape of really sort of profound trauma and grief and it's also obviously as the title would say it's a lot about food which is relevant to my interest at all times so that's what I love the food <laughs> so this is shortly after Eriko so Eriko is the is is the mother shortly after her death um so it's it's um yes so it's it's going to be a letter that she's also written to her son so Mikage's friend Yuichi but um there, there's a little paragraph before that We decided that I should have Eriko's favorite sweater, red sweater. I recalled the evening when I had tried it on and she had said, God, how it pains me. Expensive as it was, it looks much better on you. Then Yuichi went to Eriko's dresser drawer and pulled out her amazingly lengthy will. After handing it to me, he bid me goodnight and went to his room. I read, Yuichi, I feel very odd writing a letter to my own child, but because lately I've been feeling that somehow I might be in danger, I'm writing you this on the one chance in a million that something might happen to me. 
No, just kidding. One of these days we'll read this together and laugh. Yuichi, think about what I'm about to say. If I should die, you will be left all alone. But you have Nikage, don't you? I'm not joking about that girl. We have no relatives. When I married your mother, her parents cut off relations entirely. And then when I became a woman, they cursed me. So I'm asking you, don't. Whatever you do, do not contact them, ever. Do you understand me? Yes, Yuichi. In this world, there are all kinds of people. There are people who choose to live their lives in filth. This is hard for me to understand. People who purposely do abhorrent things just for the attention it draws to them until they themselves are trapped. I cannot understand it, and no matter how much they suffer, I cannot feel pity for them. But I have cheerfully chosen to make my body my fortune. I am beautiful. I am dazzling. If people I don't care for are attracted to me, I accept it as the wages of beauty. So if I should be killed, it will be an accident. Don't get any strange ideas. Believe in the me that you knew. Just this once I wanted to write using men's language, and I've really tried. But it's funny. I get embarrassed and the pen won't go. I guess I thought that even though I've lived all these years as a woman, somewhere inside me was my male self that I've been playing a role all these years. But I find that I'm body and soul a woman. A mother in name and in fact. I have to laugh. I have loved my life. My years as a man. My years married to your mother. And after she died, becoming and living as a woman. Watching you grow up. Living together so happily and oh! Taking Mikage in. That was the most fun of all, wasn't it? I yearn to see her again. She too is a very precious child of mine. Sentimental of me, isn't it? Please tell her I said hi. And tell her to stop bleaching the hair on her legs in front of boys. It's indecent. Don't you think so? You'll find and close the papers detailing all my assets. I know you can't make heads or tails of all that legalese. Call the lawyer, okay? In any case, I've left everything to you except the club. Isn't it great being an only child? XXX. Erico. Thank you. When we spoke about this before, you said one of the reasons you chose this book <clears throat> was the presentation of non-Western mm. queer life. Can you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, I think, for, for example, there, the, that, that section where, she, where Eriko says, where she says, I've tried to write this in men's language. What she means is that in Japanese, there are modes of speaking that are gendered. So there's modes of speaking that that would be in a sense, male language. And then there's modes of speaking, sort of even sort of pronouns and ways of referring to yourself that are, that are gendered. So for her as a trans woman, she, she, I think essentially what she's saying is, I was trying to write in the mode, maybe as your father, mm. as, as you might know me. And then she says, well, I, I can't do that. I, I, I can't sort of operate in that language. So for me, that's a kind of telling way of thinking about how queerness in a non-Western context would operate on language in a way that, you know, would be completely, in a sense, unintelligible and untranslatable in English. But it's a similar thing that it works in, in a sense, Tagalog or, or, in, or the kind of queernesses that I grew up in within the kind of Filipino-American community where, I mean, it wouldn't have been identified as queer. That, for me, is still a language that I personally associate with a largely kind of white academic um, sort of discourse where, you know, the kinds of the, the, the sort of sexualities people identified by, the kind of genders that people identified by, or even the kind of genderlessness of most Filipino languages has meant for me the kinds of concerns around queer life I, I feel kind of really sort of differ or, or, or at least are, are, are specific in a way that I think Western depictions of queernesses don't often capture. And how have you... Um, has that played out in the book for you? With, because obviously Hero... Yeah. 
sleeps with men and women yeah. and she starts a relationship with a woman. I mean, I think for me, I, I mean, I am a bi woman, so I'm always looking for depictions of bi women, especially bi women of color in, in fiction and in art. Um, so it was important for me, in a sense, to depict that life. But I think I, what was, in a sense, sort of equally important for me is to also think about the way, you know, hero and char- a character like hero and a character like Rosin also live at the kind of vectors, you know, vectors, I mean, we were talking about intersectionality, and, you know, mm-hmm. thank you to Kimberly Crenshaw for the black feminist legal scholar who gave us that framework for understanding the kind of vectors on which we live our lives. So, you know, Hero is a queer woman. She's also a queer, undocumented woman. She's also, the, the, we're also talking about queer immigrant suburban women, which I think for me was mm-hmm. also particularly important, because I think, I, you know, a lot of the <coughs> queer literature that I read and that really loved and valued ultimately was largely urban in its sort of scope, was about sort of like the suburbs or the kind of country was the place that you had to leave in order to become your fully realized self. And I mean, the kind of experiences that I had growing up just are not, don't always look like that. You know, I knew plenty of sort of queer and bi women and people of uh, gender queer people also in my family who remained in the suburbs and who had lives that don't necessarily, you know, look like I've gone to New York and now I'm free. You know, I, I think it's important also to to think about sort of queerness within those types of spaces as well. That's something Rosalind points out, actually, sure, later yeah. on in the book, where she says, Hero says to her, you know, it's after... They've been hooking up for a while. Hooking up for a little while. <laughs> you know, they get to that place. Um, and... Hero points out, she's sort of like, why, you know, why didn't you get more practice, as yeah, it were? Yeah, and yeah, yeah. It's like, how could, how could I have done yeah. I, when I know everyone on my street, yeah, when I bump yeah. into a different yeah. auntie or an uncle, yeah. or my yeah, mum's yeah, yeah. friends, grandmas, yeah. Bruja, like, yeah. Um, and I, <clears throat> I thought that was just really beautiful insight yeah. into something that isn't shown often in literature. Um, I also wonder if you feel like it relates somewhat to this sense of unsentimentality yeah we probably yeah I think so that kind of sense of unsentimentality and also banality I mm. think for just for for me I think you know that I, I I mean I never want to shy away from the kind of very real homophobia that characters like Hero and Rosalind would face the kind of internal homophobia within the community or the kind of structural sort of discrimination that they would face but I also don't want to make you know, a lot of times if, if, if you have queer characters, especially if it's queer characters with a, with, within a larger cast, like the whole sort of core of the narrative is like deciphering my sexuality. And I don't, I mean, for me, that's always a particularly kind of heteronormative frame through which to look at queer characters. Because it's like, I don't see like hetero characters having, like, please tell me why this hetero character is not having to decipher their sexuality. Mm. Like that's just sort of taken as knee jerk. So for me, I, I, you know, you also, as a kind of, as a bi writer, as a queer writer, you also want to assume the space where you say, well, no, I, 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 I don't have to portray characters who are wrestling, like performatively wrestling, wrestling you know, with their sexuality um, in order, you know, to, to kind of de- depict the full breadth of their life. You just want, you want to depict a kind of queer woman who now also is kind of dating someone and then also maybe has to be there for a new girlfriend and maybe kind of fails to be there or maybe doesn't or you know, now has a cousin to raise, all of those things that kind of make up a life. I think that relates to something we were talking about earlier with Jamaica, where there's an assumed identity mm. rather than um, needing to explain uh, where she's from or her perspective. Um, she assumes the existence, she takes up the space, and in that way 
you can get to the heart of the more human realities of living, loving, crying, dying. Mm. Um, and I wanted to move on slightly to talk a little bit about details again, because sure. both of these books have incredible attention to detail. And one of the things you've you've said before to me is you love the tiny tiny miracles of making a life with other people especially after profound trauma and mm. grief can you talk a bit about that and how it features in your own life yeah I think the thing that I'm always harping on about is that for me especially with port- depictions of trauma I'm never interested in depictions of trauma as a portrait which is to say like there's one character who's gone through trauma and everyone around that person is like the handmaid into that trauma that's just 100% not how I've lived my life that's not how my community has ever functioned for me trauma is a landscape which is to say okay I've been through trauma so has everybody fucking else Mm -hmm. in a sense join the club so for me it's always really been about sort of depicting sort of characters that that, that that in a way felt familiar to how I saw people around me dealing with trauma, which was just in a kind of banal, embedded way into their everyday life, into their person, not something that was necessarily kind of subterranean. Definitely there were resurgences of people's repressed trauma, but not a lot, in a sense, not prioritizing in a sort or fetishizing really the kind of the the sort of working through of that trauma at the expense of also thinking well here's a person who's traumatized but you know she's also got to now drive someone home from school you also have to you know drive the car you also have to clean the house you also have to in a sense be part of a community and I think for me that's always how the angle through which I've always sort of gotten to thinking about how to write trauma and um, correct me if I'm wrong, and you're fine if you don't want to talk about this, but um, I'm right in thinking that the novel came after a particularly traumatic event for you, after your father's death? Oh, oh, it came a few years after that. So my father died in 2006, so that was right before I graduated from college. Um, and then for about three years after that, I just didn't read or write. I just was... I had no capacity to do it. And I was also really, really sick. I, I Throughout my life, much like Ronnie in the book, I had really, really severe eczema and, and had been on really severe kind of immunosuppressive and at some point really kind of intense chemo drugs for it um, in a way that I has affected my health to this day. Um, and around that time, I had a particularly bad few years of it. And essentially, it was debilitating. I couldn't work. I could really not even... I wasn't really that mobile either. And during that time, yeah, I wasn't reading or I wasn't writing. I think except for maybe manga, which is, uh, that's, 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 that's like my left arm. I'm not going to stop reading manga. But, um, and then gradually, I think, I think the first, I, when I'm, I actually gradually, I, I, I moved to London, actually. And that, my partner ended up just getting into a master's program here. And I would have literally jumped at any opportunity to leave the Bay Area because I was pretty traumatized. Um, and then in London, I just slowly started to write, and it was X Men fan fiction. You know, it's just like some, it's, it's you know, I, I just really want to write what's in my heart. And so it was X Men fan fiction that mainly I think I realized was actually writing through a lot of, yeah, a lot of, in particular, really bodily 
bodily sort of sighted trauma because I mean the X-Men the, the, like X-Men I mean I, people have talked about how X-Men and sort of Marvel comics are a really really interesting sort of site to think about you know our kind of post-colonial issues or issues around kind of marginalization or race or gender or queerness in a way that the, you know the mutant life is a really great sort of metaphor for all of these things and so all of that was definitely in the fiction but I think I was also interested in thinking about like mutant powers as this kind of like health condition because I was also dealing with so much health conditions and then also just profound loss because so much of this these comics besides being you know besides being about sort of superpowers is often just people you know losing people just losing people I mean I don't know if you guys have seen Infinity War but Jesus Christ though like I have been talking about it with friends and I was like I don't even know what to say when people ask if it was good it was like literally like it broke up with me, like, <gasps> worse than any ex I've ever had. It was like, it was like really like a death. And I, so I'm still, I'm still, I think I'm still reeling from that. But I, I, I think it was, it was, it was the X-Men fan fiction that really got me <laughs> to writing this book. <laughs> um, and in contrast with that, can we talk a bit about food? Oh, well, I'm not interested. I'm just kidding. <laughs> It's literally the only thing that matters to me. Well, yeah, this is something that I love about Kitchen. I love about your Mm. book. Just peppered with descriptions of food, but also not even descriptions, just like the name of food. And one of the things I loved about reading your book the first time was going away and looking up all of the dishes that I didn't know. And then going to a Filipino restaurant and being like, can I have some Pepsi, please? (laughs) And like, and... um, That's awesome just so delicious how does food feature for you within your work I mean it does saturate every pore of my life but I mean I actually after when the book came out I was really surprised at how many people came up to me and were like there's so much food in this book it made me so hungry because my impression was there's not enough food in the book (laughs) I've left out so many important dishes this is this is this is this is this is a travesty I can't believe I forgot this thing and then when I went to the Philippines for the book I was talking to people and nobody mentioned food and I was like guys did you think there was like a lot of food in the book and they were like no that's normal that's that that that's that was an that was an average amount of mentions for the food given how much we talk about food like we would be out to dinner literally eating and someone would still be talking about some other dish they'd eaten before or were going to eat or comparing whatever we were eating to something that was way better in their hometown or region i'm like okay (laughs) this is like olympic level eaters so i think for me that was probably just talking about banality i think just food was just really a very present part of just an accessory to basically every human interaction yeah, yeah. that I had growing up. So it would have been in a way weird to not also but I think it's weird for me when I read books where people don't talk about food. I'm like, I find what it are so you doing odd. with your like hands? I'm like, yeah, and I kind of lose interest, right? Yeah. Or oh, I get yeah. hungry and I'm like, well, I'm gonna have to because you're not eating, I'm gonna have to take a break and I'm gonna have to have a book snack break yeah. and then I'll come back to the book. Yeah. Um let's move on to talking a bit about America is in the heart. All right. Which is your book's namesake. It is the book's namesake. I mean, uh, initially sort of uh, completely by accident. So essentially, uh, the, so America is in the heart by, America is in the heart by Carlos Bulosan is this kind of foundational text, especially for sort of Filipino Americans growing up. It's kind of a sort of required reading for sort of Asian American, Filipino American studies, ethnic studies, sometimes in, in, in high school as well. I always think it should just be required reading for American history. 
Um, so the novel essentially is kind of like fictional, uh, fictionalized, largely memoir. It really draws from Belosan's own life. is about sort of Filipino and also Mexican sort of migrant laborers in uh, on the west coast of um, the United States in the 30s and 40s, and the kind of just extremes of poverty they experienced, the extremes of exploitation, the state violence, the really severe police brutality and white supremacy, and sort of you know mobs of angry white men um, that chasing them that they that they experience in a way that is is profoundly harrowing. Um, it's also a book that for me I I, I I find needs to be contested with for its depiction of women. But ultimately, the reason that I had the the, the reason that I came up with the title of the book is only just not to traffic in cultural stereotypes, but as being Filipino, I like a pun. That's, <laughs> that's, that, that is kind of a thing. So basically, whenever I would hear someone say the title America is in the heart, and usually in a Filipino accent, to me, it always sa- sounded like saying America isn't the heart. So America isn't the heart. That's, that's what I would always hear. So it would just be a joke to me that I say America isn't the heart. Just in kind of like, sort of dumb kid type of way. So I, I kind of always had that in the back of my head as, oh, maybe I'll use that as a title someday. So really, it just so that's that was the original title, which is why the last chapter is still isn't with the conjunction. But for different reasons, we changed it to is not. But really, yeah, ultimately, it was not this sort of like grand just a, intertextual just a joke. ambition. It was just a joke. <laughs> just a it's joke. just a personal just a private joke. Just making myself laugh over here, you know. <laughs> But yeah, that's what it came so out So maybe of. we shouldn't talk about it at all. Yeah, well, we it's not that important. No, I'm just no. kidding. <laughs> um, do you want to read us a little bit? I would love to, yes. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read from the kind of penultimate chapter of the book, which to me I always sort of think of as the sort of alternate, less optimistic ending of the book. And um, basically what's happened is that the, the book's narrator, Alos, Carlos, um, has just gotten a book published. He, he's been a writer and he's been working and he's just finally got a small book published and he's about to go see his brother. I put a copy of the book under my coat to keep it from the rain that had begun to fall and went to Amado's hotel. I hoped I would be able to thaw his anger for ever since I had struck his face, I had been feeling a deep emptiness, but Amado was not in. I went to several places. I could not find him. I walked silently in the rain. I had written a book, but I had no one to share my happiness. The aching emptiness of our life in America came to me and I was angry and sad and tragic. I was deep in memories. I could not feel the heavy rain anymore. I walked to Temple Street slowly, scarcely knowing that my steps were moving in that direction. There I had always found companions. There on that narrowing island of despair was a ready crowd that I could reject or accept. My brother Amado was drinking beer with two girls. I went up to him, touched his hand and opened my mouth to speak but I could say nothing. The girls looked up and offered me a glass. I sat with them, feeling the sharp corner of my book rubbing against my chest. I wanted to show it to my brother, but his silence came between us. Then one of the girls, thinking perhaps that I had a bottle of whiskey under my coat, pulled at my arm. When she saw that it was only a book, her joyous anticipation vanished. It's a damn book, she said. Yes, it's my book, I said. Ha ha, she laughed. Poetry! She began tearing out the pages and throwing them at my face. Don't do that, please, I said, rising to take the book away from her. It was like tearing my heart apart. Amado suddenly grabbed the book from her and gave it to me. Then he got up and started beating her with his fists, cursing her. Let my brother alone, he struck her again. Let him keep his poetry, you goddamn whore. The girl fell on the floor. The other girl looked dully at her. 
I picked her up and gave her a glass of beer. She looked up at me and began crying brokenly. I just felt bad, that's all, she said. I just felt bad. If you stay on, in, if stay on in this lousy street, you'll be ruined. See what happened to me? I wanted to be an actress. I came from a nice family, a nice family in Baltimore. I put the remnants of the book under my coat and walked to the door. Amado got up to say something but stopped and looked down in defeat. I thought his unforgettable left hand would be raised as in other times, in Mangusmana, Lumpok, and Bakersfield. But he filled a glass and gulped down the beer, closing his eyes. I saw only the long scar that wound to his wrist. Thank you. So can you tell us a bit about why you chose this passage? And what are the themes that... I mean, I think I, 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 I mean, I chose the passage because it comes from that sort of chapter. So essentially this sort of chapter, is, is, this chapter of the book ends quite bleakly with a kind of real reckoning of all the things that the main character has, the, the cost really of his life in America and the kind of the choices that he'd made to sort of emigrate, to escape the kind of rural poverty that he grew up in and that is very similar to the kind of abject rural poverty that my mom came out of and in fact my mom and the narrator come from the same region in in, in the Philippines in Pangasinan and it was the first time I'd ever seen anyone write about Pangasinan in, in literature up until that point a lot of the Filipino American literature I had read was largely about wealthy people from Manila so for me it was also that shock of recognition knowing oh I think this is actually what my mom grew up in um, and that chapter is so really really contends with the kind of the the, the the real ultimately kind of harrowing realities of that life whereas the final final chapter kind of ends on a kind of sort of sort of non sequitur mm -hmm. sort of like real sort of sweet like out of nowhere kind of positive note kind of like the, the dream of america will never die in us and in, in, in you know america is in the heart mm -hmm. in a way that you know sometimes i think when you read it especially when you read it as an adult you're like this is pasted on because the actual realities of the life are apocalyptic and it's so it's so uh, relentless. Yeah. That, you know, that it doesn't let up the tone of it. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just shit after shit after yeah, shit. It's yeah, just yeah, hell. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and so that, the, the actual ending of the book for me has always seemed like sort of like a kind of lampshading. I was like, well, what? So I think for me, I always think about that chapter. And, 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 and what happens in this chapter, how, you know, after everything that he's gone through and sort of his kind of political, you know, he's joined sort of various political organizations, his, his agitating and organizing for, for labor rights. He's also been working on becoming a writer. That's also his, his dream. So he's got this book published and, you know, he wants to show it to his brother, that one of his brothers that he's sort of currently estranged from. And that just sort of terrible scene of sort of trying to go to mm -hmm. his brother, trying to show him not knowing how to cross that boundary and then having his book sort of torn apart by one of the women with his brother. And then this kind of terrible scene of violence where his brother, in a sense, out of this kind of subterranean affection for the narrator, starts beating on this woman because this is the only way that he can then sort of defend his <coughs> brother and then show affection in a way that's... Uh, it's just this really sort of gruesome scene but i think it's also indicative not of only of how violent how violence operates in the 
in the book, the kind of, in a sense, like, undercurrent of real sort of violence among men in, in the book, but also this really profound misogynistic violence that, that it really crops up throughout the book, really almost like a heartbeat. The, the amount of women that are abused, are beaten, are killed, the kinds of, the amounts of femicides in the book, the amounts of rapes in the book are really, I mean, uh, just very, very, very difficult to stomach. And I would say, even reading it again as an adult, I, I find myself in a way angrier at the book than I think I was when I was younger. Because it's often t sort of sold as it's this is a very important book of sort of Filipino-American literature, and it definitely is, but there are definitely things to contend with in it. Yeah, I found the portrayal of women and oh. the relationships between men and women um, almost described in a distant mm -hmm. kind of I don't want to use this word again but clinical way where it's mm. like and then Dora came in and then so and so had their way with her and so and so yeah. poured and then they punched her in the face and she yeah. fell on the floor and then they kicked her out and you're like Oh, that was that is a highly <laughs> measured portrait of dystopia. Okay. Yeah. yeah, and it it just it feels um feels very dystopian, like you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and you've spoken before when we were preparing for this about um these different themes: the white supremacist state violence, immigrant poverty, discrimination, and squalor, and the profoundly apocalyptic misogyny, as being the unspoken soil of mm. the whole book. Taking that metaphor, how do they? I mean, and if they did at all, sort mm. of fertilize your own these themes. Yeah, fertilize your own work. I mean, I think it must have been subconsciously because when I was writing the book, I did make an effort to not read the book just because I was like, well, I know that I'm, the title's going to rip off of it, so if I read it, I'll probably start referencing it more, and I, I didn't want to sort of go that deep with it. I mean, I think probably in a kind of subconscious way, that, that sense of uh, the kind of erasure of women's interiority and, and sort of fully fleshed out female life, I think the, the thing that's so... Yeah, dystopic about the book is not just how 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 much violence against women is in the book, but how, in a sense, how utterly tepid the narrator's reaction to that mm -hmm. violence is. There's a real, you know, I mean, he, he he's fully present to be there for the kind of exploitation he and his fellow, you know, ma largely male laborers are going through against sort of white supremacist state violence. But he has, there's no sort of reckoning with his own sort of complicity with the violence against sort of largely sort of Mexican and white women in in the book and he doesn't recognize the same no that he is complicit parts, that he that, yeah. that, that that he is brutalized that he's part of you know all, that, that same kind of brutal dynamic and then you know there are occasionally these kind of moments of kind of like nice guy sympathy where he's kind of like oh I feel bad for it I'm like well you feel bad for it but that's not fucking structural change yeah 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 so <laughs> I, I, I think I think in that sense the the ways I think looking back now I could probably reverse engineer and sort of say that the way I you know want, would want to depict women in the book is a kind of answer to that of having just a book that's filled with sort of women who have gone through the kinds of trauma that the women in a, in Bulosan's book go through but in which you get the kind of full 360 kind of vis, you know view of them where they're sort of fully fleshed out people where you see their history like if there there's uh, the hist there's I mean I think there's maybe like one person who has maybe a little bit of histor historical back you know their her own background um, one woman in in in, in Bulosan's book whereas and then she dies of syphilis. and then of course yeah exactly yeah 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 exactly oh my god 
Yeah, exactly. So that sort of that, you know, that the ways in which, you know, kind of like intertextual relationship can also be a kind of talking back to or I think is for, for me would be definitely in the portrayal of women. This is maybe a good time to show one of those. Oh, ho, ho. Sexy interior, <laughs> fully fleshed, fleshy, let's just get down and dirty with it. Ooh, passages ooh, ooh, ooh. from your book. So probably the only thing you need to know about the passage I'm about to read is that it's not told from our main character, it's told from Rosalind's perspective. So Rosalind is a character who is interested in Hero. The thing that bugged you out from the beginning was how Hero didn't even look like she minded being called Hero. It was a fucking ridiculous name. Ridiculous even for Pinoy nicknaming standards. So ridiculous you skipped all the way past the safety of mockery into full-blown tenderness like a sucker. You should have known then that that was the beginning. Should have recognized what was in your gut, roaring up in your organs, something terminal excruciating like the bad ending of the whore you'd been so good at playing on stage when you were 18, but you'd always been a dumbass. So... You didn't even realize what you were feeling until right after Hero and Ronnie left after that first meeting, and by that time, as usual, you'd already made a fool of yourself by being yourself, the way you always were with new people. Hella dramatic and flirtations, but with no real roots in it, no firm ground underneath it, the way you were with everyone. Only like a minute after Hero left the salon did you figure out that you didn't want to be the way you were with everyone. With Hero. It didn't take long for you to start giving Hero stacks and stacks of manga. You didn't realize afterward that Hero must have figured out quick that your taste generally ran toward romance, that everything you recommended to her was mainly about girls feeling out their independence, falling in love with boys who were generally either stable and responsible from beginning to end or rude as shit at first, but then juicy soft the minute the heroine ever got into some real wildness. The stories all ended the same way. Thank God for that. You knew that Hero didn't think much of your reading habits, that she found the story sentimental and full of cliches, was possibly even offended by some of them, although she was polite about it, thanking you for the latest book, even if it had been patently obvious that she'd thought it was a pile of steaming thaya not good enough to spit on. Hero knew the kinds of stories you liked, which meant Hero thought she knew something about you, what you wanted out of love, what you wanted out of life the things you dreamt about, the things you touched yourself to, the things that dragged you without protest into the undertow of dreamless, fearless sleep. She likes dumbass romance between boys and girls, so that's what she really wants. That was how Hero's thinking probably went. It felt like Hero was just waiting for the moment to come and you would just shake yourself awake from some heavy-ass dream, blink a few times at her like you didn't recognize her, and the feelings you'd been feeding and feeding off of would just vanish, like a hunger that went away the more you starved it. Better to give up and get the fuck out now, crowed the biggest and smartest part of you, the part whose job it was to acutely detect when you were out of your depth or when your dumbassness was approaching life-ruining levels. The part of you that said, enough, after the last onstage primal scream. Okay, so you were out of your depth. The life-ruin meter was wailing. That was all true. But it was too late. Too late to have your mind changed by something as minor as the truth. You didn't want a way out. You wanted a way in. Any way in would do. Hero knew what she was doing when it came to fucking. You saw for yourself the way Hero would go home with almost anyone who asked. Those first few months when you were just friends and you had to grin and turn your head, stand around at parties up in the Excelsior and wait until someone whispered in Hero's ear. But you saw Hero leave with a girl once. 
at a party in San Jose, which meant it was on the table, at least. Hero went home with almost anyone who asked. So you asked. It wasn't that deep. Or that was what you needed Hero to think. Less than a year later, she was letting you nose around her pussy like a teenager at prom, licking over extravagantly at foes that you usually ignored on yourself, or poking shallow into Hero's hole, hoping for a reaction, not really getting one. Then Hero asked you to use your hand. I got this, you said, when you finally got your shit together. Meaning, wanting to mean, wanting it to be true so much there was no way you could ever fucking say it out loud. I got you. You pressed your middle finger down on Hero's clit. Slick, saliva warm, too wet if that was even possible. Fuck, you'd been sloppy as hell. No wonder, enough. No time to lose it. Time to work. You pressed your middle finger down onto Hero's clit, gentle at first, the way you liked it, and started in on the familiar slow circle, not trying anything fancy, aiming straight for the heart. You guys should probably actually just do that last bit that I read, which was no, like 30 love, seconds, and I that's all you guys the, need. I love the lead-up, because I think um, it, it brings together everything that we've been talking about today. Oh, you know, the, um, the importance of banality, the mm. details, interiority, a kind of um, <clears throat> refusal to conform mm. to certain Western social conventions. Oh, but it's beautiful. It's so lovely. And you should all go and get this book. Oh, published gosh. May the 3rd by Atlantic Books in the UK. Um, thank you so much for joining us, no, Elaine. No, Madeline, Femi, thank you so much for having me. It's been wonderful. Um, and now we're going to let you go because I know this is probably like Elaine's 50th interview <laughs> in the last two days. Um, but thank you so much, and we'll see you later. See you later. Thanks. Thank you. Hi. Oh, and we're going to end with a song, um, because the book is peppered with wicked music. We're going to end with a song that's one of Hero's favourites. That was Gimme All Your Love by Alabama Shakes. You can find that song and all the other songs that have animated the book in the Spotify playlist, America Is Not The Heart. Join us next time at Book Club, where we'll be reading Passing by Nella Larson. Tune in then. <laughs>